who needs a weather forecast anyways? Well, apparently the Victorians did. Welcome to what is it about the weather podcast where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelanek. This week we're going to be talking about exactly that, the Victorian age of weather. And as we've been doing with the Siri, the rights, the wrongs, and everything in between. But before we get there, as always, let me just say I hope you're having some nice weather. It's a holiday weekend here in the U.S., which allowed me to go out and do a hike on some relatively, actually, coldish weather almost. I know, meteorological summer's here. For some people, summer's longer than that. For other folks, it's just a couple days away. But I had, like, highs in the upper 60s Fahrenheit, even mid-60s where I went hiking. So, I mean, translate that to Celsius for those that need it. Below 20C, I guess, is a good way to, to capture that. Really windy. Unusual for this time of year. But as I was thinking about it, it's probably the last time I'll see a high that low until mm, September, maybe, if I'm lucky. Would like it a little sooner than that. Probably won't happen. So, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I enjoyed being out and about, right? And I was reminded of a summer when I went to visit my grandparents. So I had grandparents in a couple different parts of the U.S., but one set of them lived in the Chicago area. And we went up for uh, like a 4th of July weekend. It was longer than that, but that was part of what the period we were up there then. And I remember everybody being in coats and trying to stay warm. And, you know, it was like supposedly really cold. And it it was probably more that we just brought summer clothes and no one really had clothes for it being warmer to watch fireworks, that sort of thing. And I went back and I looked because, you know, in your mind, you have this memory of it being exceptionally cold. And I looked at July 4th Chicago weather history and it, it couldn't have been that cold. Could it have been cool? Yes. Could it have been colder than summer clothes and bathing suits and that sort of thing? Yes. And it, that's probably what it was. But we always had this rule with my grandparents' house. We had to wait until they had a pool and yeah, you know, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, just a plain pool. I was reminded today in my mind, though, that they did have a fence around it. I remember pools back in the day didn't always do that, but I I think it was more just because they had a big flat yard. They were in an area that was relatively flat. For those who don't know, Chicago, generally speaking, is a pretty flat area. And we had to wait. We would always want to, like, get up and get in the pool. We had to wait until it got to a certain temperature outside before we were allowed to get in the pool because, you know, it would still, sometimes we got up there, depending on what time of year we visited, it was cold enough overnight that the water was cold. Now, it didn't necessarily bother us, but it's just one of those rules, kind of like don't swim 30 minutes after eating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't know how much all those hold today, but just memories of that kind of uh, not summer in the summer thing. And like I said, not being the biggest fan of warm weather in the world or hot weather, I'd say. Let, let, let's be clear on that. I just don't like it really hot and humid. Those sort of memories always stick out in my mind because I don't have a ton of them. So it was nice to have one of those and nice to get out on a hike and enjoy that. And we've got crypto winter going on. I've been reminded this week, you know, we did that podcast a few weeks ago about kind of using winter name, not winter names, but weather names to describe certain things and how they, it's evolved over time. And crypto winter that that we seem to be in now for any of you that follow the crypto world been a big crash in that area not that that's the only thing that seems to be impacted by it but it just hit me that way and I don't, I don't know just a lot of good weather going on around here this week some some rain some not rain is always the way I like it variable 
again, hope yours has been enjoyable. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I'm having trouble with my words today for some reason. But if you've ever been interested in storm chasing and why people do it, there's a series that this author's going to do. And, and it's I'm putting a link to the first one. Like I said, I get these couple news feeds that this kind of stuff shows up in. And this was in the my AMS News You Can Use, which is one I get every week. And a lot of it's relevant to me or it's stuff I've already seen. But this is one I hadn't seen. And it talks about just the fascination with weather. And this was somebody who's gotten into storm chasing, but apparently as a kid was scared of the weather, that sort of thing. So I I don't know. I'm looking forward to reading the series. It's well written. And a lot of times when you see this stuff or it's projected on TV, it doesn't always come across that way. So if the topic interests you more, it's not even just about storm chasing necessarily. It's about maybe developing fascination about weather, which a lot of people, this podcast fall into that category. So in any case, if you're interested, take a look at the show notes. It's a worthwhile read, pretty quick read. And I'll try to, you know, maybe you can put a link and keep up with it, but I'll, I'll mention future articles as they come out. But it reminded me that, you know, I, a lot of times I'll ask for different feedback, but if you ever run across a story you think is interesting, even if you don't think it's like, oh, this would be a topic for a show. Just if it's a story you think, oh, the audience might like, don't ever hesitate to send those to me. Because, like I said, I get inundated with a lot of things, maybe from a perspective of what my work is focused on or what popular media might be talking about. But I don't always get like local stories or, or one-offs that just may never make it to my feed. And and I, I don't have the time to go out there every day and just do searches on, on everything that maybe should show up. So again, I, I'm always, even if it's just something to share, you know, I love getting those. And I can also share it on you know the various feeds that I have, whether it's on Twitter, Mark underscore Jelinek, or, you know, the What Is About the Weather feed, or I can bring it up in an episode. So Again, don't hesitate to reach out. What is it about the weather at gmail.com? Or again, you can reach me on Twitter. Uh, just pass it along. Be glad to uh, share in what you found interesting. And, you know, if, if appropriate, share it along with the broader audience. Be glad to do that and would welcome the opportunity to do that. All right, let's get back to our series on rethinking weather. And kind of how we got from the ancients to modern day and the rights and the wrongs and all that sort of thing. And you know, last week we focused on Aristotle. And this week we're going to go to the Victorians. Now you're going to ask why specifically the Victorians. You know, what was it? And I mentioned there was a book and I'm gonna, this is going to be a, maybe a teaching moment or a learnable moment. I'm going to put a link in the show notes that takes you to the world cat. And this is like a, just think of it as a card catalog for across the globe. But it's, it's a nice electronic resource where you can go in and type in an author or a book name. And it will actually show you if it has the information for wherever you are, where you might be able to get a certain book. Now, this was a book that I was able to get kind of in a weird sort of way. I was able to get it through my local library. They had a copy, but they also had an agreement with the publishing group to be able to read it electronically, kind of a different resource. And I know not everybody, you know, some libraries have e-books available online, some don't, all those things. I'm lucky enough to be, you know, have access to the New York Public Library where I live, and it, it's a great resource. I, I won't deny it. It's, as public libraries go, 
here in the U.S. It's exceptional, probably the best I've come across. And so you may not have access in the same way, but you might. And it might be an opportunity for you to go in and read this book. And the, the book was called Predicting Weather, Victorians and the Science of Meteorology. And I think it's Katherine Anderson, I believe, is who the author was. But I mentioned before, because I, you know, I did this episode a while back that kind of took something out of this book, and I told you I was going to come back to it. And I thought, you know, in our little series, it would be a good area to get to. And, and you're going to say, well, didn't stuff happen between Aristotle and the Victorians? And the answer is most definitely yes, all right? But it wasn't, it was kind of convoluted, because as I mentioned with Aristotle, his kind of thinking and the structures he came up with and all those sort of things kind of held in some way, shape, or form for almost 2,000 years, for better or for worse, right? I mean, there were ideas, yeah, they were good. There were clearly ideas that were just wacky in, in the modern way of thinking. But they held for a variety of reasons. And when it comes to meteorology, there were a few things. And, and some of it had to do with the ebbs and flows of power and... You can think about it. So you had, you know, Christianity had its take. You had the Roman Empire. You had, you know, Alexander the Great, who Aristotle was attached to, that that did his thing. But then you had um, the rise of the Muslim faith and and the things that went with Arab countries and, you know, like things like the Ottoman Empire and other things that, that came into control. And even other areas of the world. You know, we've talked about, you know, China in the past, and there were dynasties that had, you know, more prominence. Maybe this was an era that wasn't quite as prominent for them. But even areas like India, where there's acknowledgement of certain advances they made. But a lot of it just wasn't around meteorology. But in any case, you had these things kind of coming and going. You had the Dark Ages in, in Europe, and you had the plague, which killed half of the European population. Just you can go on and on. There were a lot of reasons that things didn't really progress, but probably, and I've, I've mentioned this, that I think the biggest roadblock to true advancement was the ability to effectively and properly measure the elements of the atmosphere. Now, I touched on Aristotle a little bit, and I didn't highlight the the idea of, you know, I talked to, he understood that the earth was heated by the sun and that, you know, it caused evaporation, etc. But he really kind of put forth this idea that cold and hot were sort of not related. You know, it wasn't that temperature went up and temperature went down, that it was these two independent things. And yeah, we can kind of think about it that way. There are sources of heat and sources of cold, but we kind of know how they play out in temperature. But because you couldn't measure it back then, it was hard to relate that, right? And, and hard to make sense and, and effectively move us forward, if you will. So if you think about it in that perspective, what we really needed to move forward was the instrumentation. So more or less from the 14 through the 1600s, let's say over that period of time, we had a great advancement in all the things that we needed in weather, whether it was the ability to measure atmospheric pressure, finally, thermometers, like the Galilean thermometer. I remember, you know, somebody giving me a gift of one of those when they kind of were prominent. Now, it's been a long time ago. But the funny thing with the Galilean thermometer is he, he knew that it was, it was a change in temperature, but there was no perspective around what that really meant. In any case, so we had... Anemometers to measure the wind, all these things came about, all the things that we needed, ways to measure humidity, different things like that. 
but we were still missing some key elements, and those started appearing around the 1700s, and it had to do with making sense out of temperature. So this is where all the names that maybe you've heard about, come. You know, whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius or Kelvin when it comes to temperature, those names started becoming prominent because those systems were devised and an understanding of, of what it meant to go from freezing point to boiling point and all those sort of things. But we also, during the kind of the 1700s, started to have a couple of other critical elements. The first proposed, the Hadley circulation, which is a general understanding of how trade winds work and general flows of wind at a planetary level, were proposed. And that system, to some degree, is still used now. I mean, we still talk about Hadley circulations, and they're still relevant, right? They don't necessarily explain everything, but it was a, first, a good first-order guess. But another critical element, right, was the discovery of all the elements. And no, I'm not talking things like gold and copper. I'm talking about oxygen and nitrogen and things that were just in the air that we really didn't grasp. Hydrogen, all those things in the late 1700s really started to be understood, right? So we were finally getting all the pieces in place, all the elements, if you will, that we needed to really think about weather. So why the Victorian age and why does it matter? Well, this is that kind of book puts forward was when weather forecasting started, if you will. But realistically, the Victorian age, which again is loosely defined around the reign of Queen Victoria in England, was from the late 1830s until right around 1900. Yeah, you know, some people expand it a little more either way, depending on you know what idea they're trying to convey. But it's a period that captured a couple of critical things when it comes to weather. All right. One is the telegraph. And I've done an episode on the telegraph, more focused on the U.S. before. But the telegraph just made it so much easier to share information in a way that we've never been able to before. Whether that's just down the road or whether it's across an ocean, right? And the other big thing that would change is steam. And you may not think about it that way, but these two things, these two things and what they did made the world smaller, right? It interconnected us with the, with the telegraph, but it also made transportation from point A to point B across vast oceans possible in a much quicker way than with wind, right? But steam would also revolutionize other things. I, I kind of think of it as the precursor to the true, what we call the industrial age, because it gave us a way to make printing presses, as an example, that were much faster. Everything became quicker, okay? So all of a sudden, you had this ability not only to print, because the printing press had been around a long time, but you had a way to do it in, a, in newspapers, right, that were easier to produce on a more regular basis. And you could put a weather forecast in there. But you could also do these things. This was the rise of the era of the weather almanac, right? So there was a famous one in 1839, I think, or 38 is when it came out, where this dude named Murphy said that the coldest day in, in 1839 was going to be on January 20th. And he was right, okay? Now, was he lucky? Yes. Is that usually maybe around when the coldest day is? Yes. But it was the birth of everybody doing these almanacs of throwing out these, you know, forecasts for the year and all that kind of stuff. And as we know, you know, that stuff probably isn't the most reliable in the world, but it takes, you know, we, you get one success and it latches on and I'm sure it was a new story and it becomes a thing for a long time. 
But like I said, maybe what was more important is while all this wackiness was going over to one side was because we had the telegraphs and because we had the instrumentation, these networks of gathering data arose, right? Data, data, and more data. And it wasn't just in England by any means. It was happening in other places and in vast countries like Russia at the time, okay? So there were these methodologies and people took very seriously recording this data. And so we all of a sudden had this treasure trove of data, data, and more data, okay? But that doesn't necessarily translate into good forecast. And while we had the rise of all these meteorological offices and all this way to gather the data, that was all good. And, and it's very important that, that sort of thing happened. But sometimes what got lost in that is there were still lots of local knowledge, whether it was on the sea or, or in specific microclimates, that the, there was weather wisdom that data doesn't necessarily easily always capture. Okay, And because data was still missing over the oceans, for the most part, not saying that ships didn't record stuff, but by the time it got to somewhere where it could be utilized, it might be too late. With all that information, right, storms could still surprise people that are coming from the ocean. Now, the benefit of land and, and being able to telegraph down the road that there's this storm coming also comes with a flip side, which is storms don't necessarily always flow the way you think they're going to or flow the way in a time span that they're going to last or they crop new things crop up. Nevertheless, it provided opportunity for warnings and advance notice. Yet on the flip side, there were still cases and well-known cases where storms just got missed. And so there was a lot of discouraging scenarios. You know, it was, we're getting all this data, but we're missing stuff still. And it could become frustrating, right? And he, but even then, they were they were finding themselves in this analysis paralysis thing. And an interesting kind of thing that also happened was because of what was going on with the British Empire at the time and their connection to India. A lot of scientists focused on understand India, which had more what they would call seasonal type of thing that they could plan on the monsoon season which is well known in India and you know we even talked about it recently but they had this tropical weather and it was a different type of weather that they could work with and so a lot of effort went into understanding that and predicting that and they had some successes in that but of course they had some failures but they started to learn things about the role of sun activity in you know how changes in that can impact the planet. And so they started to make the connections, the real thinking outside the box, if you will, but not in a just a completely bizarre way. But, it, you know, if the sun is ebbing and flowing, could that be impacting the weather? It was asking these logical questions. But at the same time, you could have tons of data, but that doesn't make a good forecast, right? So... In the end, while there was this foundation laid for what I would call modern-day meteorology, the actual weather forecasts at the, at the time were probably still, you were just as well off with somebody who lived in an area who kind of understood what certain conditions preceded a storm or stormy weather most of the time or clear weather time. Because believe me, there was still lots of local weather knowledge. And I've talked about it before. Some of the things I tell you to look for when, if you're looking for a, a meteorologist in an area is look for somebody who's been there a while and who does understand those or has at least conveyed gaining that knowledge from somebody else 
that they can share that. Because I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and you think, oh, there's nothing unusual that would happen there. It's just a thing. But we had this very unusual situation that's called the wedge, and it has to do with the way the Appalachian Mountains set up and the way cold air can flow down one side of those mountains and impact Atlanta weather. Yet the wedge in another part of the country means something completely different. So it is relevant, and those things did matter, and data doesn't, again, always capture that well. But at the same time, printing gave such an opportunity to start producing weather maps and things that made sense and you know people could look at. It. We started seeing isobars, you know, lines of, of pressure on charts and stuff. All this stuff that would become kind of commonplace and that we take for granted now, that was the birth of it. So very simply, what did they get right? The data. They, they, they grasped that they needed this data, the good instrumentation, having a regimen and getting that. Okay, they, they got that profoundly right. Now, what was missing? They still needed more science, right? They still needed more science. And quite frankly, computers, and we'll talk about that. There was kind of a groundbreaking thing that we'll discuss a book that had to do with trying to do a math-based weather forecast and how difficult it was before computers. It's easy to kind of imagine, but uh, it's sort of wild when you think about it. But the struggle really for them was how do you produce a quality weather forecast, not just the production of it. So they, they got into doing them, but how could it really be useful to people? Okay. How do you incorporate things that aren't necessarily in the data, the raw data, but that's important to weather? And still, how do you work together on global things? And this really did become, if you look at some of the evidence of what was going on at that time, every country thought differently. Every country had different needs. And it makes sense. A landlocked country and an interior continental area is going to have different types of weather. And, you know, what they're doing if you're in a mountainous zone versus a, a coastal zone and what your population needs is very different. But it also highlighted that we, that the weather is global, right? And this gets back to something, you know, Aaron passed along, I mentioned last episode, think globally and act locally. And there was a real struggle for how to do this. But it was an amazing time where all the pieces almost almost came together but they were mostly there just a little more knowledge and a little more processing capability and we would go a long way but the next time the next time you go to steam some wrinkled clothes just remember there's much more to weather than the weather itself